Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll begin our coverage of Salem's Lot, starting with King's introduction and the prologue. Let's start the show. King provides a short introduction written 30 years after the publication of Salem's Lot, where he tells the backstory of the book. The novel begins with a man and a boy, but not father and son, crossing the country, east to west, before ending up in a small town in Mexico. There, the man keeps tabs on news coming out of Maine, while the boy, who seems to be suffering from PTSD, starts attending church. After the boy makes a confession, a local priest confronts the man to find out if the boy's strange confession is true. The man admits it is. Between the confession and an article about the strange disappearance of the town of Jerusalem's lot, the man makes a decision to return to Maine. All right, so Jade, this is Stephen King's second novel. We're going to start with the publication history, and it was published in 75. King was a mere 23 years old when he wrote this book. Wow. Hard to like wrap my head around that. And most of this book was written before Carrie, his first book was even published. So he was working on this. And um, although he had made the sale of Carrie, he was nowhere near being a household name. And we want to point out that Jay and I are both reading the illustrated edition of Salem's Lot. And that is because, according to the slipcase, this includes about 50 pages of new material oh so this would be the director's cut writer's cut version of of salem's lot um i've not actually seen a clear because i'm I'm, I'm trying not to spoil this for myself but um, i've not seen a clear distinction of what's different about this version from the first version and i also will say that i have not read this book for probably 30 years i I have a feeling that the last time i read this i was in high school so um, I have a vague recollection of what happens, and um, I'm, as I'm sure we'll get to, and I think I've mentioned in other podcasts, one of my uh, th- one of the scariest things that King has written and that stuck with me is in this book. So I'm looking forward to getting to that. Jay, what's your experience with this book? I read this book once, and I believe it was in the mid '90s. So I remember enjoying the book. I remember writing down a few good quotes that I liked a lot. A notebook where I was collecting quotes from various books. But besides that, I kind of don't really remember a lot of the details of this book. This is going to be like a fresh read for me. And from what I've read so far, I'm enjoying it a lot. Yeah, I've just read the prologue, but I'm enjoying it as well. I also watched the original miniseries that came out in the 70s. I don't remember a whole lot about it either, um, other than it was sort of what you would expect from a horror TV miniseries for the 70s, being very dated and not great. Um, did you watch the the TV miniseries at all, Jay? No. I only know it through pop culture references. You know, enough Simpsons episodes and the like uh, have <laughs> made fun of that TV miniseries that uh, I feel like I kind of know it, but I have not actually watched it. Yes. Yes. So again, if you're reading along with us and there's something that we cover that you don't have in your book, it's probably because you're not reading the illustrated edition like we are. And I think that that's what's available 
on Kindle. I know the book that I have is from my local library. And this illustrated edition came out in 2005, I believe. And the illustration is actually photographs by Jerry Olsman. And they're very distinctive sort of shadowy, black and white, uh, creepy photographs of what I've seen so far. Uh, they might possibly have some illustration on top of that photograph. Like uh, I know on the cover page, there's a, a gravestone with a shadowy hand coming above out, out of it. Mm. As you mentioned, Sean, I am also reading the illustrated edition, but I'm reading it on the Kindle. So I'm getting those same illustrations, but I didn't see that nice cover artwork you just described. Ooh. I just showed it to Jay over our Skype. <laughs> he enjoyed it very much. Yes. For this audio medium, yes. we'll show you more illustrations as we go through. <laughs> um, as I've also mentioned many, many times before, one of the things I like most about Stephen King's writing is when he writes about his own writing. And we get an introduction that was only published in this edition and not in the other one. So he's looking back at the book 30 years later, and there's a a lot of good pieces in there, Jay, some some fun facts. And he really talks about how, you know, at the at the mere age of 23, he was trying to write um, the great American novel by combining Bram Stoker's Dracula with the naturalistic fiction of Frank Norris and EC horror comics. You know, mm -hmm. certainly a melting like pot. You of, like you do, you know, melting pot of popular in, uh, writing all into one book. Well, he found the magic formula because this is one of his most successful and loved books. Yeah, and in fact, for a long time, King would refer to this as his favorite book. So there's a number of articles from the 80s where he's asked what his favorite book is, and he mentions this in at least two separate interviews that he says, I think Salem's Lot is my favorite book, which is interesting because at that time he'd also finished The Shining and The Stand, uh, The Dead Zone. So there's a number of things that he could have chosen from, and, and he chose Salem's Lot. More recently, when he's asked that question, He's been saying 112263, which is no surprise considering how much he, we've talked recently about how much he wanted to write that book. Mm -hmm. Or even he said uh, Lisey's story, which is an interesting one to pick out because I don't think that maybe anyone outside of King thinks that that's King's best book, but <laughs> that, that's his prerogative, right? Yeah. He likes what he likes. <laughs> what else did you notice in this introduction that stood out for you, Jay? Well, it was really fun to learn about some of the history that was going on behind the scenes for King as he was writing it, and then like the changes that happened to his life a little bit when Carrie was published and became a hit. Um, as you said before, he started writing this book before he published Carrie, and he wasn't done with this book after Carrie came out. So he went from being an basically unknown author to someone with some cachet to his name, and suddenly his you know, his editors and, and everybody were starting to think like, maybe you have a future in this business, kid. <laughs> and I guess his working title for this book was Second Coming. And his wife, Tabitha, thought that it sounded a little bit too much like a sex manual. <laughs> this is why having a good partner in life is important yes. because they will call you on your bullshit and, <laughs> they will, and they'll set you straight. And this was good because who knows if king had stuck with second coming he may never gotten another book published you'd never know so then he said okay well i'll change it to jerusalem's lot that's where the story takes place and then his publisher said oh, well i don't know about jerusalem's lot it sounds too religious 
So he's like, well, fine. Call it Salem's Lot. How's that? And yep. then the rest is history. There you go. Yeah. So I had always heard King describe Salem's Lot as Peyton Place with Vampires, which mm-hmm. is sort of a great elevator pitch, right? Like, here you go. You combine two things and this is what you get. And I had always assumed that that was King's elevator pitch. But in fact, it was his editor who called it that. And, and we learned that in this introduction when they're trying to figure out, well, what's the second book that you're going to publish be? And the choices are that he's got done is Roadwork, which ended up mm-hmm. becoming a uh, Bachman book, and, yep. and, and Jerusalem's Lot, called Second Coming at the time. And his editor says, you know what? Roadwork would probably get more serious attention, but Second Coming is Peyton Place with Vampires. It's a great read, and it could be a bestseller. And King's like, great, let's go with that. And his editor's like, but there's one problem. You're going to get pigeonholed as a horror writer. And King's like, ah, I'm not worried about that. I don't care what they call me as long as the checks don't bounce, which, again, King coming from a poor family, struggling to make ends meet, you could tell. As long as the checks don't bounce, call me whatever you want. And then he protests a little bit, even today, you know, 30 years after it came out and said, you know what? I don't really consider myself a horror writer. I just think that's what books booksellers do so they can have a place to put my books on a shelf which mm-hmm. eh, you're a horror writer king i mean he keeps writing horror stories yeah yeah in defense of his perspective he does write a lot of things that aren't pure horror yes. but you know the dark tower has one key example but yeah i guess it's it's hard to keep making that argument if 30 or 40 years later and 50 books on the shelf and like the majority of them are horror stories yeah like, yeah, he found a lane that worked and and he worked it. He totally did. He totally did. Yeah. So the other thing that we both noticed in this introduction is how much King talks about the importance of storytelling. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, this is a theme that we talked about at great length in the Dark Tower books of just how important storytelling is throughout it. And he says again in this book that he doesn't want to be thought of as a plotter because, you know, if you do that, it's, it's just going to be really shitty. Like it's not going to be a good book, but what you want to be is a storyteller because the storyteller is what keeps the pages moving. It keeps the reader engaged and really keeps the book momentum moving forward. And Mm -hmm. so um, really, as you could tell, that's what really sets King apart from other writers, I think is his ability to keep the reader turning pages. Um, and, and want to find out what happens next, what happens next. And that's not plotting it out, although there's probably a, a part of that, but really just letting the characters take the books where he goes, which is something else he mentions in this book, that he really thought that, unlike Dracula, which he says is an optimistic novel, he was going to write a vampire novel that was going to be more pessimistic. And then he said, you know, it didn't really turn out that way because my characters fought against me and 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 turned it, turned it around. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. Uh, but I thought that that was an interesting way of doing it and how important that storytelling is there. Yeah. One of the things that King says in, in this about storytelling is that sometimes there will be nicks and dings, but along the way, there are many passages of power and a few of grace. I thought that that was a really powerful line and it made me look forward to experiencing these passages of power and grace as I read the rest of this book, because I, I sense that it is a book filled with them. Yeah, so we'll find that out. And then, since this is King's second book, we probably get the first instance of a King protagonist being an author, right? 
Like mm-hmm. this is this is the Sue Generous of uh, of all of that of that trope for King. Um, we're told that the tall man, neither the man nor the boy, is named in this section, but we're told that the tall man is a writer. That he had had a couple of books that were written when he was, you know, before the events of whatever happened in Jerusalem's lot. And that while he and the boy are on the road, he sells another novel for an outrageous sum, right? It's like $25,000 and the promise of a book club deal, which in 1970s dollars was like a big chunk of money. You think uh, King was just being wishful, like applying some (laughs) uh, wish fulfillment uh, on, on his character here? Yeah. Yeah. I want the book club deal. <laughs> Potentially, yes. It's like Marianne Williamson. If I picture it, it can happen. Make it true. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, do we want to get into the story itself? So it's got a first line, Jay, that is not quite as good as as the Dark Tower, but still not bad. Almost everyone thought the man and the boy were father and son. Well, there you go. We get two characters introduced, just like the Dark Tower, um, mm-hmm. and a little interesting fact about them. They're not related, but not quite as evocative as the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. No. Yeah, that's that's a high bar. Yeah. That's a high bar. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear that they are on the run, and it's something that they're not like running from the law or or a person. They're running from something that has them scared, which makes this feel very ominous like okay you've got two people who are not related but they act like father and son and they're really scared about something that happened really far away and they're still scared yeah and enough that they're keeping tabs on it Mm -hmm. so the man goes out of his way to get the portland Maine newspaper which i can imagine that in the 70s was probably not that easy to do like you know you're you don't have the internet it's probably hard to get a small town newspaper like that. Like it's one thing if it's the New York times or the Washington post, but if you're in California asking around for the Portland Maine newspaper, it's probably not that easy. Yeah. It even crossed my mind that it might make him easy to follow. I thought the same thing, right? Like if somebody was trying to figure out like who's buying this paper in California, but again, that would also be hard to do the other way. Wouldn't it? I suppose. (laughs) But yeah, but if, if he had the uh, investigative reporter... Um, Richard Dees. Yeah. Yeah, if Richard Dees was tracking the tall man across the country, he'd just go into every newspaper shop and he'd put in the hard work and he would say, who's asking for the Portland, Maine paper around here? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's this tall guy with a with a boy with him. I think it's his son. <laughs> Thanks. Which way did they go? Yeah, right, exactly. So, yeah, th- there's this foreshadowing of uh, people on the run um, the man keeps looking backwards, if not actual physically, but via the paper. And then they end up crossing the border, right? They get enough, he gets enough money from his advance on his novel that he's like, all right, we're going to sneak, I don't know if they sneaked across the border, but they get across the border and they end up in a small town called Los Zapados, which means the shoes. Um, and it's a small village away from everyone. Uh, no one speaks English there or very few people do. Uh, no TV. And, you know, this is a good hiding place for them, they figure, uh, away from Mm -hmm. anywhere you can get. Right. So they kind of settle down in the area, and the boy ingratiates himself in with this church congregation and eventually makes a confession. And this confession that he makes is so disturbing to the priest that the priest 
breaks the seal of confession and comes to talk to the tall man about what the boy told him in confession. This is so outrageous from a you know the confessional seal perspective that it it's telling to us the reader that this is some really messed up stuff that this priest heard. You know, like this priest he's an old old man, right? So he's lived a long life. He's heard a lot of stories. This is the first time in his whole long life that somebody has said something to him that he felt that he was going to break his vows and reveal some of this to another person. Yeah. And it's not even one other person, the the tall man. He has to do it through an intermediary because he doesn't speak right. English. So it's it's bringing another person into the fold and you know the guy the tra- the guy who serves as the translator says, you know, I I have a a debt to this priest, so I promise that I will not tell this beyond the three of us. Uh but mm-hmm. again, for the priest to to do that just shows how much he is concerned yeah. about this because the priest says that he has seen lizards that have screamed as though it were a woman and has seen a man with stigmata. So, you know, if he's seen those things and he's still worried about whatever the boy's talking about, yeah, that's not good. I mean, I've seen a video of a goat that screams like a human. Oh, well, I guess I, I, there you go then. <laughs> I guess this priest hasn't seen anything special then. <laughs> I mean, it's just, not a portent of ominous things to come. Or is it? So in addition to this confession, the man also gets a newspaper that has an article that piques his interest, uh, and it's titled Ghost Town in Maine. And it's a feature story that tells of how a town in Maine, Jerusalem's lot, just sort of dried up and the people who were living there don't live there anymore. And while the newspaper reporter was able to find some of them in towns elsewhere, they all don't really talk about it. They just all have excuses for leaving, like, oh, we want to be with family, or there's nothing there anymore. But the whole town's gone, just dried mm-hmm. up in, a, in an instant. And there's still a number of people that they want to find um, that have not been located. The reporter was not able to locate it, and they're hoping that they can find those people. Um, and it's this paper that then the man leaves around so that the boy can read and the boy does read that. And between that and the confession, the man comes to a decision. He wakes up and says that I'm going back. And the boy is concerned about this and says, do you love me? The man says, yes, God, yes. And they decide to head back to Salem's lot. Yeah. That brief conversation puzzled me. The question of, do you love me? I, we talked about it for a, a minute, but it's like, is he saying, are you going to abandon me? Like, yeah. I thought you loved me, and now it sounds like you're leaving me behind. And it just came out as, do you love me? But I don't know, you had a pretty interesting take on it. Yeah, so, so the, the man says, can you come with me? And the boy responds, do you love me? And the way that I picture that is that the boy's asking for protection. We already know that he's not related to the tall man. They're not father and son. And that they've escaped together. And he must see the reason that the man wants to go back because he's seen Mm -hmm. the newspaper. um, And he's asking for protection in my mind that do you love me? Will you protect me? And when the when the man responds, yes, God, yes, the boy began to weep and the tall man held him. And so we get that picture of of protection, that physical protection that he's offering. Um, And maybe the boy senses he's not safe anywhere. Like he still seems to be suffering from whatever effects of what had happened. Uh, there's mention of how he doesn't sleep well and how he has nightmares. 
even being in Mexico. So I think that that's what he's looking for from this tall man. But again, this is just enough that King's giving us to ask these questions, to wonder, well, what is this relationship? What did the boys see? What are they going back to? Why, why, why do they have this relationship at all? Yeah, what shared experience, what horrible shared experience did they apparently have that they have this bond and that they had to run? Yeah. And now that they've decided to go back to face it again, like, yeah, King laid down a lot of really great stuff here to just whet our appetite. And I'm very eager to keep trucking forward into this book. Yeah. So we're going to continue doing our Dark Tower thinnies where they make sense. And we have to remind folks that this book was written four years after he started the, the Gunslinger. But that book had not been published yet, and I don't know if he had any sort of concept of where the Dark Tower was going to go and that all these books are interconnected. But, Jay, I think you and I agree that somewhere in King's mind, there's enough of these ideas that are floating about that there seems to be, even when they might not be intentional by King, some Dark Tower connections. And so, therefore, we are going to continue our Dark Tower thinnies section. I don't think we'll ever let go of the Dark Tower Thinny section. It just might get a little shorter in, in certain episodes. Very thin. Yes, it'll get very thin. There's one thing that I, I guess this is a pretty thin thinny. King quotes Nobel Prize winning poet George Seferis in his prologue. And he quotes George Seferis again in Dark Tower Book 6, Song of Susanna. That quote, he quotes Seferis saying, the column of truth has a hole in it. So clearly, Sephiroth has been an influence on King from an early date. Like, he knew of Sephiroth, he clearly liked his work, and knew enough of his work to quote him here in 1975 or 4, or whatever he started writing this book. Right. And then, again, Sephiroth returns for Song of Susanna. So I and, count that. Yep. And as we found out, in our last episode, the Night Flyer, he mentions in the end notes for that, he talks about that George Seferis quote again. So again, he, something that's been in his mind for a while. Mm -hmm. The only other thingy that I noticed was that the newspaper article that the tall man reads mentions a number of people that the police are looking for, including one Father Donald Callahan, parish priest of St. Andrews. Yeah, I heard of that guy. We know him. And uh, <laughs> that thingy is pretty thick, I think. I think we're good yeah. on a Dark Tower thinny there, which is one of the main reasons we've returned back to this book. Mm -hmm. I'll have to wait to find out what the reason the tall man has to return. Yes. And at first, and I, again, I, I sort of snuck ahead. I wasn't sure if the tall man could potentially perhaps be Father Callahan, but I don't think it is. Mm. His Father Callahan is not a writer. That's right. Although he is tall. And referring to him as the tall man kind of gives this character a little bit of, I don't know, darkness too. Like. Mm. Whenever King has described characters or named characters in these vague ways, they've often been, I don't know, evil, like the Dark Man or... Man in Black. The Man in Black. Hmm. Or Pennywise. <laughs> so, Sean, are you ready for some fun stuff? Yeah, I am. We only had about 16 or 18 pages here, Jay, so I'll be interested to see what we find. All right. Well... I kind of used up one of my fun stuff items when I talked about how I can't wait to read these passages of power and grace. Yes. But I like the line so much, I said it again now anyway. <laughs> Good job. Thanks. Um, I, I liked how in his introduction, King says it would be years before I would hear Alfred Bester's axiom, the book is the boss. 
And I love that. The book is the boss. And that's how he talks about how he can't really plot something out because he needs to let the books tell the story it wants to tell. So mm. good axiom to live by. I like that. I bet he has that inscribed on a plaque above his typewriter. <laughs> or like a little sign that faces outward on his desk. The buck stops here. It's a post-it stuck to his monitor. <laughs> Who's the boss? The book is the boss. Um, I really like the line when he was talking about this very important and life-changing conversation that King was having with his publisher while walking down the sidewalk in New York City. The sign changed from don't walk to walk. And his publisher said, like, kind of over his shoulder, they're going to cast you as a horror writer, you know, <laughs> and then continued across the street because in New York, you don't waste the walk. That's right. Even when you're having life changing conversations on the, on the right. sidewalk, you don't waste the walk. Another item that I found here is quite entertaining was that um, King only made it to his second book before creating a title with two apostrophes. <laughs> Yeah, that is a good one. Yeah. And as far as we know, it's the only book with two apostrophes. I think we figured out Lisey's story. The aforementioned Lisey's story has one. Yeah. Everything's Eventual has one. Jerusalem's Lot has one. Yeah. If we're missing one, let us know. Two apostrophes is what we're looking for. Can anybody beat two apostrophes? Yeah, and then he went from that to just having books with just two letters. It. Yeah. Er. Yeah, those are so annoying to google (laughs) (laughs) or just have a conversation about did you see it what damn it (laughs) i used to know what it was but then it changed and now i don't know what's it anymore (laughs) another fun stuff that i have is when the tall man is reading the story about the ghost town in maine he mentions the mary celeste which is a ship that was found adrift with no crew And there was really no indication of what happened to the people who were on board. In fact, everything seemed sort of undisturbed. They all just sort of disappeared as as if nothing had happened. And I thought that that was an interesting one to point out. Um, That happened in the 1870s. And I don't know Hmm. if that was sort of something that would be more culturally relevant in the 1970s. Like if people knew the Mary Celeste, because it's not, it's something I had heard of, but not familiar with. I guess what I would have thought of sort of abandoned towns, my first thought is Roanoke, um, yeah. which is sort of a famous one that would may- maybe make a little bit more sense from a reference to that point. So I, I'm a little interested in why King chose to marry Celeste and not a more famous, in my opinion, and maybe it's just my lack of knowledge, uh, Roanoke is his ghost town. He didn't want to use that up because he was going to write Storm of the Century many years later. Oh, that could be interesting. Keeping yeah. his ideas fresh for 30 years down the line. Exactly. Yeah. And the the last uh, fun stuff item I had was the man and the boy liked to swim in the Pacific. It held no memories. This is very much like a line that we hear Andy Dufresne say to Red in the Shawshank Redemption about meet me down in Zewataneo and we can swim in the Pacific. Yeah. It has no memories. Are, are we going to have to start a Shawshank Thinny section? Yes. All <laughs> the, everything that connects to the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> Anytime Rita Hayworth gets mentioned, anytime anybody mentions different seasons. There you go. Yeah. It's all connected. All right. Well, Jay, I am very excited about reading Salem's Lot. If this first prologue is any reflection of how the rest of this book's going to be, as well as my memories of what I think 
uh, some of the great scenes are in this book. I'm really looking forward to this. As am I. All right. Well, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. And if you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we continue our discussion of Salem's Lot, covering part one, chapters one through three. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. I can't wait to edit in the goat scream. <laughs> <laughs>